This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. When future books are written about the history and politics of abortion in the United States, this week we'll warn a chapter. The Supreme Court announced it would hear a challenge to a new Mississippi law, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, that would ban abortion with limited exceptions after 15 weeks. This will be the first significant abortion case the high court has heard in its current makeup, with six justices nominated by Republican presidents with clear anti-abortion stances. The case has the potential to reverse the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that guaranteed a women's right to abortion, and it will, at a minimum, mark a moment where abortion politics and, and history has changed. And then that wasn't enough. Later this week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed legislation to ban abortion after six weeks. A lawsuit will likely follow where it's actually unfolding kind of as we uh, record this podcast. Our guest today, Jennifer L. Holland, is an assistant professor of history at the University of Oklahoma and the author of the book, Tiny You, about the history of the anti-abortion movement. Professor Holland, welcome to Political Theater. Thanks for having me. Sure. So let's let's talk about just what a big deal this Mississippi case and and the Supreme Court is before we get into Texas or or, or that kind of stuff. I mean, we do know that next in this next term, the high court will hear this case and there uh, will likely be ramifications. Yeah, this is a big case. It's not an unexpected one. I think as soon as um, President Trump got to nominate all the justices he did, this was going to happen, whether it was Mississippi or somebody else. But um, it seems like by taking this case, um, the majority of the Supreme Court is ready to uh, really take the step that it was that a lot of them are there to take, um, which is to either fundamentally undermine Roe or overturn it altogether. And I think that one of those two options is the most likely. I would be shocked if uh, if they struck down the Mississippi law altogether. Let's talk about like the what are a couple of the different options that the court uh, has? I mean, they've been very good, particularly under Chief Justice John Roberts, of punting things or sending them back to district courts uh, or or kind of, you know, weaseling their way out of big decisions. Uh, and so let's go from the most incremental uh, sort of step that, that we, we could probably see from them in restricting mm-hmm. abortion rights to the biggest deal. Yeah. Um, well, so Roberts was key um, before Barrett, and Roberts at least, especially in the last major abortion decision, abor- uh, Roberts suggested he was at least interested in maintaining precedent, but he was open to future uh, limitations, but now they don't need him. So I think that the issue, the first thing they could do is sort of undermine this idea of viability, which is built into Roe, um, which is what the Mississippi law fundamentally sort of contests. Right, which is that you can't ban, states can't full out ban abortion before the point of viability, which is that end of that second trimester. That's what Roe says. Um, But of course, the Mississippi law does that. So they could just sort of take viability out. Uh, They could say viability is no longer the key. And 
but that really does fundamentally still undermine Roe. But that sort of opens up the world of um, for conservative legislatures to start passing a host of laws. So that's one option. Then they could sort of just throw out Roe altogether and say there's no uh, federal protections for abortion and turn it back fully to the states, um, in which case, uh, you know, half the country will just sort of ban abortion altogether without any veil of, of abortion rights. And a lot of states have laws built in that they trigger, right? When, when Roe's overturned, they automatically default to banning abortion. And then that would sort of turn it back to this late 60s moment where some states it's legal and available um, and open and other states just completely banned outright. And I guess the furthest they could go is they could technically um, ban it across the country. I think that's unlikely. Um, but I think that the most likely option is one of the first two, but, but they really result in the same thing, which is a, a situation on steroids of what we already have which is that some states it's pretty hard to get, but, but uh, fine. And that could go to some states it's impossible to get, um, but other states is fine. Uh, but this will sort of magnify that situation. It's just an incredible geographic inequality. Um, and, and certain regions are going to have, is, are going to be more affected than others. Like the South, it'll be almost all states will have banned abortion, right? Whereas the West, will be more of a patchwork. So it'll be a little bit easier to sort of cross state lines um, to get abortions. Right. And, and you know, I, I was, you know, sort of struck by this um, bifurcation that you're talking about where, you know, like there are just going to be regions um, that, you know, we've typically associated with like one political party or another, you know, the, the Democratic Party dominated the South for years in 1964, that really changed, uh, and has been a re- largely a Republican stronghold. Um, and now, and now we see, you know, the, the sort of the, the payoff of that, which is that their Republican kind of super majorities are, are really beginning to, um, lean in and, and, and pass laws like the Mississippi law, like the Texas law. Um, and I, I just, I'm, one thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is that what do you, that, you know, we're seeing some of these states turn, right? You know, Georgia voted for Joe Biden. Uh, Arizona, my home state, voted for Biden. Uh, Texas was close. Uh, Florida was close. It's not all Mississippi and Alabama. Do you think that, like, from a political party perspective, everybody thinks that the, it'll always be like this, right? That 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 Dem- Republicans will always, you know, dominate Mississippi, for instance, or Texas, until until it doesn't happen. What do you see as the ramifications here? Because we are, we do seem to be going in a direction where. A lot of, you know, the, the, the parties are locked in right now, but there's also this growing political non-affiliation. <laughs> uh, and, and I see, like, the, the, the politics of that, I think, are really up, almost up for grabs, it seems. Yeah, I think that um, there's sort of two issues, right? One is that these red states who actually have, you know, growing, either non-affiliate, but also growing um, increasingly empowered and enfranchised. Democrats, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that we saw in places like Georgia um, and Arizona too, for that matter. Um, And I think that some of the, I think that it would be interesting to think about whether um, some states like Georgia might, in the aftermath of Roe, end up having these sort of shifts in abortion law as well. I mean, one of the most important reproductive justice groups, Sister Song, is out of out of Georgia. 
Um, and they were one of the groups that, you know, allied with Stacey Abrams and, you know, did that work. Um, the non-affiliation is, a, is interesting. And I, I don't really know what swing voters, um, sort of where abortion falls in their purview. I mean, it, it isn't, I think that because they are swing voters and because, or these they're unaffiliated, abortion doesn't matter as much because the two parties right now are so polarized. And if abortion really mattered to you one way or another, um, you wouldn't be unaffiliated, you know? Um, so, but there are, I think that polls have shown us across time that huge percentages of, um, of Americans believe that abortion should be legal, especially in that first trimester. Um, and the second trimester gets a little bit more, you know, divisive. But that first trimester, a lot of people really support the right to abortion. And so if the court takes the drastic step, steps that I think it will, a lot of those people who maybe don't vote because they don't really fully care or they don't really think that Rose at risk, they could start committing themselves more and more to the party that's, that's challenging those restrictions. And how, how did Republican politics become so identified with anti-abortion um, activism? Because I mean, in, we, we still, we see like the last vestiges of, of kind of, liberal republicanism or or free market republicanism uh you know like country club republicans if you will in in people like susan collins and lisa murkowski who are still um you know abortion rights they, they believe in abortion rights uh but that's a that seems to be the past and and the future the people who are being elected now in the republican party um it's not just a litmus test it's a what's your record <laughs> kind of test right yeah yeah, I think there's two big historical steps in, in the moments that this happens. The 70s is this huge moment of transformation for both parties in terms of issues of gender, which isn't surprising because this is also the rising tide of the feminist movement, um, massive social change just on the everyday level, um, and of course also gay liberation. And so the parties are really reorienting in the 70s around these issues in a way that they weren't before they were divided across the board, you know, um, both parties put forward policies supporting, you know, the male head of household and, um, sort of the patriarchal family in one way or another. Um, but that really shifts by the mid seventies. And so you start having Republicans, um, and really by 1980 sort of see the value in social conservatives and need them. And so they start, at least paying lip service to the the desires of this rising group of of people who call themselves conservatives but aren't committed first and foremost to party. They want a party to commit to their interests. And that's eventually what they find in the Republican Party. But I think between 1980 and 2000, they really do see a Republican Party who's really willing to, or Republican leaders who are willing to sort of talk the talk, but are not willing to actually follow through. Um, and Ronald Reagan is probably the best example of this. You know, he is the California governor who signs um, this late 60s abortion liberalization law in California. Um, and he's, you know, sort of one of these country club Republicans that you mentioned in a lot of ways. 
Former Democrat, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, when he runs for president, he runs as an anti-abortion candidate and he writes a book while in office about abortion. But he really doesn't follow through in any meaningful ways. Um, and, for example, I, I wrote a lot about the Arizona anti-abortion movement, and they keep telling him when he's uh, thinking about who to nominate that Sandra Day O'Connor is not an anti-abortion justice. They, they tell Reagan over and over again, she's not our guy. And he chooses her anyway. Of course, she's from Arizona as well. Um, and so they have a lot of this um, throughout the 80s through the thousands. Like anti-abortion voters are coming out for Republicans, but Republicans are not reciprocating. And I think that really changes in the 21st century, where you have big socially conservative leaders like James Dobson of Focus on the Family, who sort of put their foot down and say, you know, we are no longer going to support leaders who don't follow through. And so in the 21st century, uh, you really start seeing um, Republicans get elected at national office all the way down to state offices who really are either ideologues or understand that they need to follow through in a meaningful way. And of course, this isn't just President Trump. This is, you know, these laws in state houses were escalating throughout the 2010s. I mean, massive numbers of anti-abortion laws passed. Um, often clearly unconstitutional. But, um, and then, of course, President Trump, who was not an ideologue by any stretch, um, you know, he was pro-choice in his past. Even when he was anti-abortion, he clearly didn't understand um, <laughs> the, the rhetoric really well um, to sort of speak it like it, it was native to him. Um, but he understood what he needed to do, right? He needed to appoint anti-abortion justices. And of course now, because he did that, it matters none at all. He really followed through and, and delivered what this movement wanted from the very beginning. I wonder when, when I think about just the current makeup of the court, I mean, you know, the three justices that Trump appointed, um, the first one, Neil Gorsuch, was of, of course the the seat that, that Mitch McConnell held open uh, for uh, more than a year after Antonin Scalia died. And, you know, Scalia, that was sort of a one-for-one one, um, uh, anti-abortion justice. But Mitch McConnell, you know, coming under all this pressure, uh, he, he knew, you know, that what mattered was keeping, you know, the activists in the fold. And so it didn't matter what kind of... Uh, um, criticism he endured. Uh, he, he, he followed through on that and he got that justice. And then, you know, Kavanaugh, uh, it, you know, the, this, it's, it's interesting how much data we have and how, how we still are sort of coming to grips with what happened in the 2018 midterms, uh, which is that on one hand, you know, Kavanaugh probably, and his confirmation hearings and also his, you know, avowed anti-abortion stances, uh, might have really supercharged some of the Democratic voters or people who voted for Democrats and enabled Democrats to take the House. But then on the state level, you saw Democrats from conservative states like Indiana, Joe Donnelly and so forth, and Claire McCaskill in Missouri, uh, lose for maybe the same reason, which is that anti-abortion uh, voters were, were fired up. And there's almost, to me, it almost seems like there's no way to, you know, the, the, it's... You get one. You don't get one and not the other. Um, and with Barrett, you know, we had another Supreme Court justice. This one, you know, maybe arguably the most anti-abortion um, of of the three. And um, you know, we we have a, a current 
Democratic, you know, sweep in the in the 20, 2020 election. And I wonder what the this decision would come out before the 2022 midterms. What are you looking at as an historian and as also somebody who wants to know the politics of this? What are you looking at in terms of like what kind of effect this might have on, on a, a closely divided electorate? Yeah. I mean, it would be such a victory for anti-abortion activists, but I would be fascinated if it actually would decrease Republican turnout. Um, because if you've won, I mean, I guess you would want to pay. And if abortion is your only issue, which I think for a number of people it is um, enough that it matters, you know, you might want to pay back the people who got that victory for you, I guess. But there isn't that kind of like need to stop what these activists think of as genocide, right? If it stopped, you're like, okay, wonderful. You know, (laughs) we're done. Um, So I wonder if it actually might decrease Republican turnout if you finally win the thing that you've been waiting for. And certainly I think it would increase Democratic turnout in a, in a big way. I, I do think that for all of the attacks on Roe, I mean, anyone who pays real close attention knows that these, these attacks have been coming for 50 years but and escalating. Um, but I think that there's a number of people who still take it for granted or they don't think about it enough and they still think that when they need it or when someone they know or love needs it, it'll be there or that they can find it somewhere somehow. And I think that that can change very quickly. And I think that there will be a huge response when it does. Um, Because what we know um, about the last 50 years, but really about human history, is that women have always desired some ability to control their reproduction. Historians don't actually like things that are true across time and space, but this seems to be true across time and space. Uh and. And so even in red states that have all these rules, like the one I'm in in Oklahoma, there, is, there are still huge numbers of people who are knocking on the doors of the few abortion providers in these states constantly trying to access what is still a constitutionally guaranteed right. But once it is no longer, they still are going to be knocking on someone's door. And I, I wonder if that's the, the, the difference in, in this, in, in abortion politics with a lot of, of rights sort of issues. Because, I mean, one of the things that you write about in your book and, and have studied is that the abortion, anti-abortion activism is based in, a, in, in people thinking that they are, they are fighting for the rights of the unborn. Um, on the other side of the ledger, if you're taking away a right, that is a more... That, that is a very drastic moment. That is a very that that is a, a fulcrum, if you will, because we we don't typically take rights away after they're granted. They, I mean, like that, that's that's when people do start taking rights for granted is when they have them, and then when they're gone, it's like, wait a second, I have to go to California to get a you know to to access like the morning after pill now. Uh, you know, I mean, like it, it's it's it seems like it's. While uncertain, it, it just seems like th- this has the potential to really light uh, in, into people in a way that a lot of issues haven't. Yeah. And, you know, the anti-abortion movement has tried so hard to um, sideline that issue that this is something that if they do win, that it will really affect the rights of women. And one of their most successful narratives since the 80s has been they, they created this idea that women were damaged by abortion, um, often psychologically, but that they, the anti-abortion movement and and abortion regulation 
actually protects women. Um, and what's most important is that they've, they've sold this argument in courts very successfully. All of these rules about doc- doctors having admitting privileges, all that stuff comes out of this anti-abortion rhetoric that, that ultimately abortion is very dangerous physically, but also dangerous in an uh, emotional sense that, that women end up having something akin to PTSD as a result. And so, um, you know, that's worked with uh, justices and it's worked with various courts to one extent or another. But I do think that when Roe gets either functionally irrelevant or actually overturned, that right to abortion, which anti-abortion activists have been so earnestly trying to hide that there is substance to that right, um, will become very clear that there is substance and that people do lose something massively when they do not have it. Um, And who knows what that world looks like? I hope it doesn't look like the world of illegal abortion in the 1950s and 60s. I hope that our, you know, these, um, these abortion pills, right, have made abortion more safe than when people were using knitting needles or God knows what, but it still will be a huge numbers of women will return to a black market that is fundamentally an unregulated way to access healthcare. And sometimes you're going to have fine results from that. And sometimes it's going to be incredibly dangerous. It, it seems like you mentioned the seventies as, as being a, a turning point where uh, um, Democrats became associated with women's rights in, in a way that they hadn't before. And and we still have a, a um, I mean, there is a, there has been a gender gap for, for you know, since then, a, a fairly sizable one between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And I wonder if, does this have the potential? Um, I mean, there will always be, you know, women who are anti-abortion. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett certainly proves that. Um, mm-hmm. But is the Republican Party in danger of becoming like to, to women as it is to black voters, you know, after the civil rights act in, in the sixties uh, and, and the civil rights, you know, movement in, in the fifties and sixties, I mean, blacks never really went back to the Republican party, even though the first the Republicans are the ones who won the civil war. <laughs> um, and, and the Democrats were the ones who were, you know, up to that point in Jim Crow enforcing, you know, segregation. Uh, but they never went back, you know, to the Republican party in large numbers. It is largely the Democratic Party is largely like that is a, a key part of the of the Democratic coalition. Is there a danger, particularly with I mean, college educated women? It seems are gone, yeah. <laughs> um, like from from the Republican Party. Uh, but is there a, a, a potential that women just leave the Republican Party, except for a small group of very dedicated anti-abortion activists? Um, I think the gender gap could grow, um, but. Unfortunately, or perhaps unusually, women don't have the same relationship to sexism that African Americans have to racism in a way that I think um, that that they both a lot of women both participate and buy into some profound sexism as a part of their daily lives in a way that you know it's not like people of color never participate, but it's just a really different kind of relationship, you know, that, that these power hierarchies are sort of built into these really intimate relationships um, in, in all parts of women's worlds. And and so you do always have women um, and especially white women who find 
um, that, that this separate space, that this idea of being put on a pedestal, that motherhood is everything, that there's some sort of biological difference, they feel like that is a compelling place for them and a place of empowerment. And so I don't think ever that group will go away. And I don't think it's so small to be negligible. I think that what you saw happen in the advent of the 70s, not just with the feminist movement, but with the economic transformations of the 1970s, where people could no longer live on one income, you know, and this was not just true for women who were going into professions, but true for women who now had to work in service work, you know, not, not empowering, not exciting kind of professional avenues. And I think that a lot of women who still live in that world, right, where like work is not empowering, a lot of like social cultural spaces outside of their family and their church are not empowering. And so they retreat even further into these spaces that really are built into these very traditional gender roles and they find um, sustenance there, right? And I really don't think that's going to change because our economy is not changing and um, and our and our politics, I don't think, are going to change very much. That that there isn't, they don't. There's a lot of women who do not feel alienated from very patriarchal spaces, but feel very valued there. Um, and I just don't think that's going to change massively. But I do think that the gender gap will grow, um, and I think that the issue of generation could matter significantly, as you say. But women, I, I think people since suffrage have imagined that women would be a unified voting block and have been just disappointed time after time that that has just not been the case. And now comes the wait. Uh, we, we, now we wait uh, for, you know, this current Supreme Court term to end and then, you know, arguments next year and then the decision. Um, it'll be, uh, it'll, it'll be a, a at a, at a very minimum, <laughs> a very interesting time. Uh, Professor Holland, thank you very much for uh, talking to us on Political Theater. Thanks for having me.